This series we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking about the things that happen in the heavenly realms, in the spiritual realms. We're going to be talking about angels. We're going to be talking about demons. We're going to be talking about Satan. We're going to be talking about all of these different things. And the whole point of it is, is that I get a lot of questions about this stuff, and the Bible addresses this stuff a lot. And so why don't we jump in, and why don't we check out what it says and what it teaches us so that we know how to handle this stuff and so we know how to understand it. I think that most of us, as I talked about last week, we have an understanding of what's real and what's fake in most things in our life, but very few of us have a sense for what's real in the spiritual realms. And I want this series to change that within your mind, change that within your heart, change that within everything that you are. Because almost every struggle and everything that you deal with in your life has some tie to spiritual warfare. Every bit of it. Now... This is one of my favorite times of the year. It is fall. The weather is beautiful. The weather is beautiful. I mean, it's deer hunting season. Um, it's not only deer hunting season, but, uh, but one of my favorite holidays, which is kind of weird being a pastor, uh, Halloween. Any Halloween fans in the house? Yeah. Now... Now, how many of you guys, let's be honest here, how many of you guys are going to dress up for Halloween? How many of you guys are dressing up? Okay, all right, all right, all right. Okay, okay. How many of you guys are going trick-or-treating for Halloween? Yes, yes, yes. Now, let me just, <laughs> let me just say this. I, I loved going trick-or-treating. It's one of my favorite things to do. Now, listen, I say I loved that's past tense because I no longer can go trick-or-treating because it's a little creepy if a 33-year-old man shows up at your doorstep wearing a Batman costume holding one of these. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's a little creepy. You know what I'm saying? And uh, so, so I quit, I quit trick-or-treating when I graduated college. It's all good. I mean, I tried to extend it as long as I could. You know, I would always, I would never go alone because that's even creepier. And, uh, but, but listen, I am excited and I have exciting news. After a 12 year hiatus from going trick or treating, this year I'm back in the game, baby. I'm back in the game. See, this is what happened. This year I had a kid. And this is what kids do kids give parents permission to do all of the things that kids get to do and we get to get away with it. So I'm no longer a creeper because I have a kid and so they think that I'm doing this for my kid, but she can't even talk or eat candy. So it's all going to me, baby. That's what I'm talking about. Now, now listen, I'm so serious about this. I was like, I got to get a cute costume for Abby and my wife is a fashion design major and stuff. And so we went on the hunt for the cutest costume for my little girl. And, and, and our little girl for Halloween this year is going to be a cupcake. <laughs> Dude, it is over. Look at that little girl. That's my girl. Take it off the screen. I'll be distracted for the rest of the night. So my little girl's going to be a cupcake, and I get to go trick-or-treating. I'm so excited about it. I'm so excited about my little girl going around. Now, listen, 
I have had this hiatus for the last 12 years, and I haven't been able to go trick-or-treating, so I do what all of the other old people do, is I, I actually hand out candy on my porch. You know what I'm saying? That's what the old people do. And any old people in the house? Yes. They're all quiet. They're like, yeah. <laughs> You're like 15. All right. So, uh, and so, and so I, I, you know, I get to hand out candy. Now, there's two things that I like about handing out candy. The first thing is, is that I get to eat candy in between the groups of the kids that come through. You know, so my wife and I sit on the porch, and I just pound candy. Kids come around, I stuff the wrapper in my pocket, I hand them some candy. And and then the second thing I like about trick-or-treating is I like seeing all of the costumes of the little cute kids coming up to my door, and some teenagers, and oftentimes uh, they're weird. But anyways, and and so they come up to my doorstep. And, uh, and I like to look at our co- and, and, and like the little pirates and Batman and Superman and Iron Man and all the mans and uh, princesses and mermaids and all the little cute kids in their little costumes. And occasionally, occasionally, a little kid will come up to my doorstep in a devil costume. In a devil costume. Yeah, I can <laughs> That's him. I think I got another one, too. This is a little, I think I got a little girl up there. What else we got? Oh, look at a little devil cop here. What, what about this last one right here? Oh, yeah, dude. That kid is scary. That kid is scary. <laughs> what was that parent thinking, right? And this is what I think. <clears throat> Every time a kid comes up to my doorstep and he's like, trick or treat, I'm thinking, okay, <laughs> How did this conversation go? Mom and dad are sitting there. They're hanging out. They're like, hey, let's go buy our son a costume. Yeah, what do you think he should be? You know, I, how, about, how about we just make him Satan for a night? I don't know. Maybe, maybe that'll work, right? I mean, maybe he's like a little devil child at home or something like that. And, um, and so they dress, him up like, they dress him up and he comes up. And, and the truth is, when those, little, like, when those kids come to my door, I always give them like a little extra candy because I don't want them to like come back when they're older and sacrifice me or something because of some, you know what I'm saying? Like this weird. And, uh, and so, so I start, you know, I, and, and I love seeing all these little kids and, and I think about all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and actually all this kind of talk about trick-or-treating and candy and all that kind of stuff kind of makes me want some candy. Anybody want some candy? How about we give them a little bit of candy before we head on for the rest of the service? How about that? Now, once you get a piece of candy, hey, once you get a piece of candy, go ahead and grab your Bibles out from under your chairs or once you have, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. So I think about that and I think about these kids that come to my door and I think about all the costumes they have and the kid that comes to my door in the devil outfit and I think about kind of what their parents were thinking when they did that. And as I begin to process that, As I begin to process that and I begin to think through it, I think, why would you do that? Why would you dress your kid up like a little devil? And I think this is why. I think because we think it's no big deal. It's cute. Like, it's not, it's not really that big of a deal. I mean, it's Halloween. It's all in fun. It's just really not that big of a deal. And what happens is, is that we begin to look at like dressing our kid up like a little devil. <laughs> like we begin to look at that like, like, well, you know what? Like some people dress their kids up like heroes, like Batman, Superman, you know, Iron Man. And some people dress their kids up like villains, like, you know, Magneto or the Joker or, or the devil. No big deal. And here's the deal. 
I think one of the biggest deceptions in our culture and one of the things that Satan would like to do is for us to minimalize who he is. He wants to be hidden. He, do, he, doesn't, he doesn't want us to consider him. He wants us to underestimate him. He doesn't want us to even, even acknowledge that he even exists. And so we begin to look at the devil almost like he's like this like, like superhero villain type of person. And he's just kind of this fanciful, mystical villain creature just like all the other fanciful, mystical creatures like the Joker and like Magneto and other villains of the like. And he loves this. This is what he wants from us. In fact, in the movie The Usual Suspects, there's a famous line, and this is the line. The line is this, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing people that he doesn't exist. And let me tell you, he's done a great job at this. Uh, a recent study was done that showed that 60% of Christians do not believe that Satan exists. Really? So let me get this straight. 60% of the people who say that they follow Jesus, have surrendered their lives to Jesus, do not believe in the one who Jesus talked about, who Jesus encountered, and who Jesus believed was very, very, very real. In fact, when you open up the New Testament and you begin to look at the life of Jesus before Jesus ever started his ministry, four chapters into the New Testament, we see Jesus having this real, physical, intimate encounter with Satan. The temptation of Jesus, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus believed in Satan. And he warns us not to take him lightly. He warns us that, listen, he is clever. He is deceitful. Do not underestimate him. And all throughout the Bible, we see scriptures speaking towards Satan in this way. In fact, if you got your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, which I uh, gave you just a minute ago. Let me, let me read this to you. He says this. Peter says this. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be alert. Be alert and of sober mind. He said, look, don't treat this casually. Pay attention. Be of a sober mind. Your enemy, the devil. Whose enemy? Your enemy. My enemy. Your enemy, the devil. Prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He gives us his picture of the devil as a lion. Satan, like a lion, prowling around looking for whom he is going to devour. Now, now. Be alert and sober-minded. Let me put this in perspective. And this would have been the picture that the people of this day reading the words of Peter would have got from this particular conversation. It would be like this. Let's say I took you over, uh, you know, to Africa. And I dropped you off in the middle of the African jungle. And I said, this is what I want you to do. I want you tonight to travel 10 miles from this spot to this spot, and I gave you a map and a compass. But, by the way, there are thousands of lions and prides of lions that, that herd, in the, that are all in this area, all these prides of lions, and they hunt at night. Now, I know what would happen. If you were traveling on that, you would be alert. You would be sober-minded. Every sound that you heard, you would be 
freaking out. You would have maybe a weapon with you. You would be looking around. You would be having someone watch your back. Like you would be alert all the time. That's the picture that Peter's given here. He's like, listen, don't underestimate it. Satan wants you to take him lightly. He wants you to, 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 to not even consider him. He wants you to believe that he isn't real because if you don't believe that your enemy is real, then your enemy has you right where he wants you. And that's what happens. I love the Discovery Channel. I'm kind of a Discovery Channel nerd. And the lions are my favorite animal. The king of the jungle. I buy all of the videos. They come out and I watch them all the time. I know everything that you can imagine about lions. And this is the interesting thing about lions. Lions, when they hunt, they hunt at night because people or because the, what, what they're hunting can't see as well right it makes them less visible it, it it allows them to get closer to their prey it allows them to sneak up it wants to catch them off guard satan wants to catch you off guard he wants to take you out in your blind spots and then what they do is they attack three different individuals within a herd they attack the babies, the small ones, because they are the weakest. They attack the injured. If within a herd there's a, an injured animal, the animal can't run as fast, that's the one they're going to go after. And they attack the one that is separated from the herd. See, within the herd, there is strength in numbers. You can hide and you can, you can kind of work together and the chance of escape is much higher. But when you separate yourself from the herd, you make yourself vulnerable. There are so many spiritual implications for this. This picture, as people would see it, as they would listen to the stories they hear about, and they would know how the lion hunted, as they would have encountered this before, they would know this, and they would take this, and they would say, listen, this is so true. Satan attacks the spiritually weak. He does. You wonder why you can't break free from certain things. You wonder why you carry around so much stress. You wonder why you carry around so much anxiety. You wonder why you carry around so much depression. You wonder why you struggle with the same sins over and over and over and over again. And you just feel weak. We talked about that last week. He attacks the babes, the babies. See, the Bible tells us that when you give your life to Christ, you are a, a baby in Christ. You are an infant in the faith. Like newborn babies crave the pure spiritual milk of the word. Peter tells us earlier that as a new believer, you have this fire in you, and you crave more the milk of the word because you want to grow. In Luke, he tell, Jesus tells the parable of, of the seed, and the sower and the seed, and he throws some seed out, and some of the seed falls on the ground, and it begins to take root. But Satan comes, and he takes it away. He takes the seed out. He goes, and he attacks the babies. And so when People are new in their faith, like they come back from camp and they have this amazing faith experience and they've given their life to Christ. You better believe that the next couple weeks after that, the enemy is going to be attacking you. He is going to be putting doubt in your mind. He's going to be setting things up to try to destroy you because he does not want you to make it. Man, that is so true. This weekend... At 12 Stone Church, about 380 people surrendered their lives to Christ and were baptized, some people in this room. And I tell you that because some of you will be facing that attack. And not only does he go after the spiritually weak and the babes, but he goes after the injured. Those that are limping along. And when we look in this passage right here and we see it, 
we see that we see that there's all kinds of analogies and things that we can pull out to kind of see how he works and how he comes after us. And so I think one of the most important things for us to do is once we've acknowledged the fact that Satan is real and he is for real, then we need to begin to get some intel on who he is. Like, if, if we're going to go as a military somewhere, and we have a common enemy, and we're going to go attack ISIS or whoever that enemy is, one of the most important things that we need is intel. We want to know as much as we can about the enemy so that we can devise the plan of attack that we need to have so that we can make it, so that our soldiers come back safely, so that we can hit the enemy where it hurts, so that we can do what we need to do to keep our people safe. That is the whole point of getting intel. So let me give you a little bit of information. Let me give you a little intel on the enemy. The first thing you need to know is, uh, is that Satan's, is Satan's personality. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. I want to give you a little intel on his personality. The first part of his personality is that he's prideful. Satan is prideful. The root of pride in our lives comes from Satan. He's prideful. In fact, we see this in uh, Ezekiel chapter 28. We'll have it up on the screen. Verses 12 through 19, it says this. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the Lord says. You were the seal. This is talking about Satan. Notice what he says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Carnelian, he goes to all the list of the stones. And he says, our settings and, and mountings were made of gold. Of the day you were created, they were prepared. You were setting and mountings were made of gold. Oh, all right, so that, all right. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the days that you were created until the wickedness. Notice it says that until wickedness was found in you. Notice it says until the day you were created. Basically, this is what he's saying in this passage. And if you read it, he says you were created as, as, a, as the greatest of cherubs. You were the most beautiful of all of creation. You were the most beautiful of all the angels. Satan was in heaven with God with all of the angels and the heavenly host. And he was the most beautiful. None of God's creations were more beautiful than Satan was. And he was prideful. He saw the worship of God. He wanted the worship of God. He desired it. Isaiah talks about it. This passage goes on and continually talks about how he wanted to raise up like the most high God. This is his personality. He's prideful. And as a result of that pride, he was cast out of heaven. If you keep reading this passage, it says the second thing I want you to see about him is not only is he prideful, but he's charismatic. He's charismatic. Think about this. The Bible tells us that when Satan fell from heaven, when God kicked him out of heaven, a third of the angels followed him. You want to know how convincing the enemy is? If you can convince a third of the angels that have been in heaven, who have seen God and worshiped God to follow you, you are convincing. If you can convince man in a garden where everything is perfect to disobey the one true God who created him and then created his wife right beside him, right in front of his eyes, if you can do that and convince a man to do that, and you're charismatic. Do not underestimate the power of the enemy. He's enticing. A lot of times we get this picture of Satan like he's this, like, you know, 
crusty, nasty, demonic thing, and we watch these horror movies and all this kind of stuff. No, 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 no. Listen, he is the most beautiful thing you would ever see in your entire life. See, a part of this is that he mimics God. As a part of his personality, he is one of the great imitators. In fact, in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, I think we got that as well. Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light, as an angel of light. He masquerades himself as an angel of light. He goes around and he masks himself as light. This is what he does. He mimics God. In fact, I got some examples of how he mimics God. Uh, we have Jesus is the son of God. Here's some examples. And Satan is the God of this world. We have the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's the triunity, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. You have the children of God. The Bible talks about the children of Satan. God marks his servants. The Bible says that Satan marks his servants. You've ever heard of 666? That's the mark of the beast, the mark of Satan. Christ is the true light, the Bible tells us. The passage we just read, Satan is, masquerades himself as an angel of light. Christ appoints apostles. Satan appoints apostles. Today, there is a satanic Bible. There is satanic churches. There are satanic worshipers. I was just reading an article the other day about a whole group of satanic worshipers that were having, uh, making sacrifices and doing all of this stuff uh, uh, to, and, and, uh, to, and, and, and telling people to come and rebuke Jesus, to rebuke Jesus and lift up the name of Satan. These people exist. This isn't like fake people or something made up or some Halloween scheme. This stuff exists. I think that one of the things that Satan likes to do is infiltrate churches and mess with the doctrine and the teachings of the churches. He wants to render the church ineffective. How does he do this? One, he gets the church to focus on the wrong things. And this happens all the time in churches. Churches close their doors because people disagree over the color of carpet in their churches. That's crazy. He wants the church to focus on a broken relationship that you might have. He wants you to focus on different things that you don't like. He wants you to focus on all He wants you to be so focused on, yeah, I, well, you know what? I like this speaker better. I like this band better. I like this better. I don't really like how they said this. I don't really like how they told it. He wants you to do that because if he can get your eyes off of Jesus, he is fulfilling his mission. That's what he wants to do. The second way is he... he takes away from the message of Christ through false prophets. Matthew 7, 15 says this, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. You know there are billions of people that have false views of Jesus because of false prophets. Billions of people. In the Mormonism faith, in the Islam faith, which I discussed this summer, Christianity and Islam, Christianity and Mormonism, go back and listen to it on our podcast and so you can get some reference for it and understand it. They teach false teachings about Jesus. They believe in Jesus. Both of them believe about Jesus, but what do they do? They take away from the truth and the message that the Bible teaches about Jesus. It's a distortion of it. Billions of people follow false views on Jesus. It's a part of the plan of Satan. And that leads me to the next point, Satan's plan. Satan has kind of a threefold plan. The first one is this. He wants to destroy God's plan for salvation. The Bible tells us he wants to destroy God's plan for salvation. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 15, 
a big word, but it's called the Proto-Evangelium. Basically, this is the first gospel. Right after the fall of man, after Adam and Eve have eaten from the fruit, God comes to them and he, set, and he lays, lays down the law for them. And, you know, they're separated. They're taken out of the garden. A part of that punishment is death. A part of that punishment is pain and childbearing. A part of that punishment is, is that Adam is now going to have to work the ground much, more, uh, much, much harder as he's to, to get the fruits from the ground. All these punishments are dished out. And then God dishes out the punishment to Satan. And he tells Satan, the serpent, he says this. He says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman's offspring. Talking about later, Mary and Jesus. The woman's offspring, Mary being the woman and Jesus. And you will strike at his heel and he will crush your head. One of my favorite scenes in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, is the opening scene. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He feels the weight of the sins of the world on his back. He's crying out to God, saying, God, if there's any way that salvation can come other than me sacrificing myself, is there any way of this, for this cup of death to pass from me? God, make that be so, but not my will, but your will be done. And you see Satan lurking in the background, this character playing Satan. And he's throwing out all of these things. You could never do it. It's too difficult. You can never take away the sins of the world. He's throwing out his accusations. And Jesus is weeping. And, and he, he bends over. And a snake comes out between his legs and crawls over to Jesus. And Jesus stands up. The, the character playing Jesus stands up. And he looks at Satan. And with his heel, he crushes the head of the snake. It's a picture of this. That, bro, you're going to be defeated. Satan knew from that moment that God is going to do something to defeat him. And he wanted to do everything in his power to destroy Jesus, the plan of salvation that God had. God's son coming into the world to pay for the sins of the world. And we see this. It starts right off the bat. From Genesis to the cross, this is happening. We see this right off the bat. Cain and Abel. We see this happen with Abraham. God gives a promise to Abraham. Abraham goes against God's plan, and he takes Hagar and uh, his wife's maidservant and has a child with her, Ishmael. We see this with Moses as Pharaoh goes to try to kill all of the babies that are being born to the Israelites, uh, to God's people. And, 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 and one of the midwives takes, takes Moses and takes him and puts him in the Nile River. And Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's daughter finds him in the river and saves his life. We see this in King David, who we know that the line of the Messiah, the line of Jesus would come through. We see Saul, the king, before David, trying to kill him many times. People were after him. They were after his head. We see this all throughout scripture we see this even after jesus is born we see herod the great send all of send some soldiers down to bethlehem to kill all the babies under two years old why did he do that he wanted to kill whoever it was that was going to be called the king of the jews talking about jesus this is a plan of satan trying to to thwart jesus from making it to the cross because he knew if he could stop jesus from dying on the cross there would be no salvation for man and we would be hopeless if I can just get him to fall, he tempts Jesus to sin, and Jesus stands. He even begins to tempt the disciples. Peter comes to Jesus, and Jesus has just finished praising Peter in Matthew 16. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Peter, you are right. I am the Son of God. What you are saying is true. And then he begins to tell the disciples, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to go do this thing. And Peter rebukes Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Why does he say that? Because Peter's words were the mission of Satan. 
There was great temptation for Jesus to not go to the cross. We see it in the anguish in the garden, which I was talking about a minute ago, right before he's arrested. Who wants to go through that pain? In fact, we even see that when Jesus is on the cross, feeling the weight of the sins of the world, there is a thief on one side, and on the right and on the left, and one of the thieves begins to say, what are you doing? Take yourself down from this cross. Call your angels down. Like, stop this madness. The other thief rebukes him. Why do you think that temptation was great for Jesus? Any moment he could have snapped his fingers and angels would have came down and destroyed everything because he loved us. He knew that he had to finish the mission. The second favorite scene that I have in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, is that when Jesus says it is finished and he dies on the cross, there's this picture of the character playing Satan and he screams like, oh crap. Because when Jesus said it is finished, it is finished. It is finished. He was defeated at that moment. His plan is to destroy the plan of salvation. The second part of his plan is, he's, is to destroy unbelievers, people that do not believe in God. In 1 Corinthians 4, 4, the Bible says this, the God of this age, talking about Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel. Have you ever been talking to someone and you're just like, man, they just don't get it. Like I talk to them about Jesus and they're just like, and they're just, they just like push it off or like they think it's foolishness. The Bible says the message is foolishness to those that go on without believing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. What Satan wants to do is he wants people to not see the truth of who Jesus is. The truth of what God has done through his son Jesus so that we could be saved. And the third part of his plan is this, is to defeat the saved. Defeat believers. He's waiting for our weakest moments to destroy us. He is. I think that one of the major parts of his mission is this, is that if he can render believers ineffective, then he's won. You may be going to heaven, but you're not going to take anybody else with you. That's what he wants. You know why you feel that fear when you go to talk to somebody about Jesus or you go and talk to somebody about your faith and you're like, man, I just don't, man, I, you feel that tension. If you don't feel that tension, then, then you're strange. I've been a pastor for 12 plus years. I've been, I've been a Christian for like 16 years. I feel it every time I have that conversation. But the Bible tells me, for God did not give me a spirit of fear. So that is not from God. That I can have boldness in Christ to share my faith, to tell people about Jesus, to make a stand for what I believe in. He wants to defeat the saved. He wants to defeat you. I think one of the biggest ways that he defeats teenagers is he feeds you lies. That's what he does. In fact, in John chapter 8, verse 44, the Bible says that Satan is the father of lies. He is the source of lies. He tells you things like this. He tells you that, that God isn't real. He tells you that God doesn't really love you. He tells you that God is mad at you. He tells you that you will never please him. You will never measure up. 
God cannot forgive you from that sin. He's an accuser. There's a better life out there for you apart from God, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's how he works. See, Jesus, again, addresses Satan, who he believes to be very real, and he says this in John 10.10. For the thief, talking about Satan, comes to steal to kill and to destroy. He wants to destroy you. He wants to take you out. He does not want you to live. He does not want you to live a joyful, effective life. Thomas Brooks says this. Satan promises the best. I think we're on the screen. Satan promises the best but pays with the worst. He promises honor and pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. He promises profit and pays with loss. He promises life and pays with death. And that leads us to the third third point, if you're taking notes, Satan's problem. Here's his problem. His problem is, is that he didn't stop Jesus from going to the cross. And he didn't stop Jesus from raising from the dead. And that's great news. That Jesus went to the cross the sinless sacrifice taking away the sin of the world he died on the cross in my place in your place for our sin on our behalf so that through him we could be restored to God man that is so powerful that Jesus is the answer to Satan himself that he has no power over us because of that so what do we do what do we do The first thing we do is this. We do what the Bible tells us to do here in verse 8. We be alert and sober-minded. Be alert. Be alert. Be aware. Pay attention. Understand that there is a battlefield going on, that there is a war going on for your soul. There's a war going on for the souls of men. Recognize the spiritual warfare. Recognize when things are happening at times. Maybe it's because the enemy is attacking, and you need to be ready for battle. you got to be alert. you got to be aware. The second is this. Don't take him lightly. John, uh, in fact, Jude 9 says, don't take him lightly. He's clever. He's powerful. He's sneaky. And he wants to destroy you, as we talked about. And there's a couple questions that I just kind of put down under this thought. Don't take him lightly. What is one area of your life where Satan is trying to steal, to kill, and destroy? And the second question would be, or what is one lie that you have believed to be true, but you know is not true? What is the one lie that you have believed to be true that you know was not true? And then the third thing we do, let's look at verse 9 here, 1 Peter 5, verse 9. Then notice what it says, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Resist him. In fact, in James 4, 7, it says this, Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If you resist him, he will flee from you. See, he's afraid of you. He's not afraid of you because of how strong you are, but he's afraid of you because the power of God that's living in you. You don't have the strength to overcome, but the one who has the strength to overcome now lives and dwells in you as a believer in Jesus, and because of that, you now have his power living in you so that you can overcome. That is great news, friends. That's the reason that in 1 John 4, 4, the Bible says, 
You dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. This verse of scripture right here, I quote this verse to myself probably more than any other verse in all the Bible. Because when I feel those spiritual attacks, when I sense those things happening, when I'm praying for different things, I'll go to God, I'll get down on my knees, I'll say, God, I can't do this apart from your power. And you tell me in your word that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And God, I need you to help me overcome in this moment because I believe in you and I believe in your power. Some of you in this room are struggling with some heavy stuff that I don't even want to pretend like I understand because I don't. But you need to know where the source of that pain is. It's not from God. And you can overcome. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so this is what I want to do just to kind of close out the service. I put this down at the bottom of your notes. We got it up here on the screen. I want you to read this with me. I'm going to read it one time through, and then I want you to read it with me. We're going to read it through a couple times. I want to etch this in your mind. Because how do you fight temptation? How do you resist the enemy? The Bible tells us clearly to use Scripture. Jesus, when tempted by Satan, every time, he says, for it is written, he uses the Scripture. And so the Bible tells us in, in Psalm chapter 119, I've, David's talking, he says, I've hidden your words in my heart that I might not sin against God. How does David resist the attack of the enemy? God, I have memorized your words so I can fight the battle on the battlefield when it comes to my doorstep. That's why we laid out the challenge last week during this series to memorize the armor of God. It's only a couple verses in Ephesians chapter 6. Because the last week of this series, after next week, next week we're talking about angels and demons. The week after that, we're going to talk about the armor of God and how to stand and what does that look like and take this just another step further. And I'm going to be talking about the armor of God that night. And, and as we talk about that, I think it would be appropriate for you to have it memorized. And I think that it's cool. And I've, I've done this many times as I'll get up in the morning and I will actually pray the armor of God. And I've asked you guys to pray the armor of God over your life. Almost like you're getting ready for battle, getting ready for war, being prepared for the spiritual battle this out there so i want to challenge you to memorize this verse so i'm going to read it one through one time and then we'll, we'll read it through uh together a couple of times so here we go you dear children are from god and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world all right you ready on three one two three you dear children are from god and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Now here's the catch. Here's the catch. And we'll close with this. Almost went off. <laughs> Here's the deal. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world as long as you have him in you. 
See, the key part of this passage is the only way you can tap into the power of the greatness that God has for you is if God is in you, if Christ is in you, giving you the power to overcome. That a prerequisite to tap into the power of God is knowing him and having a relationship with him. And so that's the challenge I want to lay out to you tonight. If you're here tonight and you say, man, I need to get my life right with Christ. I need to surrender my life to him. I mean, I want you to do that. And it's not some magical prayer or any of that kind of stuff. It is about you turning your heart to God and saying, God, I want to turn from my sin. I want to turn my attention to you. I'll put my trust and faith in you. And I want to surrender my life to you with everything that I have. And the band's going to come up and they're going to close us out with a song. And I want you to do that. And you pray your own prayer. You deal with God and however you feel like you need to deal with God. And then I want to ask you to make a bold step. When this service is over tonight, I want you to come down here and meet me at the front. And I want to have a conversation with you. Quick conversation. If you're here tonight and you know you need to surrender your life to Christ, you need the power of God in you, that you want to have the overcomer so that you can overcome, then I want to encourage you to come and meet me down at the front. So we're going to close out with a song, and I just think that it's cool to just continue to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords, that we can celebrate the victory that we have in Him, right? Like that's why we come in here and we sing and we celebrate because we've been set free by the blood of the Lamb. We have been set free by Jesus. We, have, we, are, we are here because of His grace and because of His love. And so let's worship Him in spirit and in truth.